Welcome to the Untold Podcast, capturing the culture's imagination through speculative fiction. I'm your host, Nathan James Norman. Five years. We have been producing audio fiction for five years. Over 34 hours of quality audio fiction. And to celebrate this milestone, we've upgraded our media servers. That's right. Thanks to the generosity of our patrons over at Patreon, we are now able to put our entire back catalog on the podcast feed. That means new listeners will be able to go back on their Androids or iPhones and have direct access to all 68 episodes. And we were able to do this without having to change the feed address. Some Android users may need to reset the feed so that they don't have duplicate listings of the last 25 episodes. Also, thanks to our lovely patrons, we're proud to sponsor the Flash Fiction Contest, Good Snakes. From now until December 31st, we are accepting flash fiction submissions with the theme, Good Snakes. We want science fiction, fantasy, horror, strange, and supernatural stories, 300 to 1,000 words. Joining me in this project is Peter Younghusband from Reviews by Peter. Together, we'll select the top five stories and produce them on the show. Then, early in 2018, we'll turn over voting to the friends and fans of the show. The third place wins $25, second place $50, and first place wins $100. Find all the details at www.untoldpodcast.com backslash goodsnakes. Finally, today's story has come to us a little behind schedule. Part of this is because of the length. This is a long one, so adjust your listening habits accordingly. I think there's great meaning behind our fifth anniversary episode, so without further ado, The Untold Podcast is proud to present Snow and Ash by Nathan James Norman. Norway, 1025 A.D. I sat in the cold around a small fire, alone. I kept the mead hall at my back. The biting cold blew hard, then abated. My strength, my sight, and even my once keen hearing deteriorated in my old age. But I still heard cautious steps moving through the snow toward me. I placed a casual hand on the hilt of my hunting knife. In one motion, I unsheathed it, spinning around to meet my first attacker. Eric Lambskin, put that away. I'm not here to avenge myself on you. Hilda Beryl stood before me. She was old. Not quite as old as me, but time had not been kind to this once beautiful woman. Her hand rested on the handle of her dagger. I sheathed my blade, turning my back on her and returning to my fire. Shouting against the wind, still with my back to her, I said, You should not be here. I have rejected the people's will at the thing. I am an outlaw. Someday one of you will come here to claim my lands, my weapons, and what's left of my treasure hoard. After they've claimed my life. I know all of that, Lambskin. She said as she walked around me to the opposite side of my fire. And yet, still I come. She sat down. We declared you an outlaw last spring, when all the community assembled at the thing, and every night since you have come to the hall, you sit with your back to our celebrations. At least join the guards in their duty. It is not good to have no human contact. She gestured to the opposite side of the field, where three spear guards stood around a much larger fire. I stared into the flames as they struggled against the wind. I am no longer welcomed in the community. I will not approach you. 
I looked at her. Nor should any of you approach me, she said. I am here because I want to know why you are here. I looked back to the flames, then across the field to the guards. I come every night in the hopes that one of you will challenge me. I turned back to her aging eyes. Maybe so I can kill him, or he me. As you say, it is not good to have no human contact. Eric Lambskin, I have been the woman of my house longer than most have been alive. Even after my husband's death, I have ruled my home. I am ruthless because I know how ruthless you men are. I do not doubt your desire for combat, nor your bravery in the face of death. She paused. What I want to know is why you refuse to agree with the rest of the community at the thing. Every last one of us agreed, but you. I owe neither you nor the community an explanation, I said. Is it because of your dedication to Tyr, or was it Odin? I cannot remember. It was a lifetime ago. She stared. I met her gaze without looking away. Then I rose and pulled a branch from my tinder pile. Breaking it in half between my hands, I threw the two pieces onto the fire. Embers exploded and showered Hilda Barrel. She did not flinch. I growled. I have never worshipped Tyr. I offer no allegiance to Odin. Their power is impotent. They may be ancient gods, but they are feeble. I stood above her. I do not doubt the existence of this new god. I have seen the same miracles you have with my own eyes. Nor do I doubt his supremacy above all the other powers in this world. No, I did not agree with you and the others during the thing because this Christ is a bastard. He has made himself my enemy, and I will not bend my knee to him. I stopped, spittle dripping from my gray beard, freezing in the early winter cold. In the old days, if a man wounded you, we killed him. If we could not kill him, we died on our feet as we fought him. But now you and all the others bow to the god-man who has wounded so many. If he were any kind of man, this Jesus would come down to kill me, his enemy, or send one of his worshippers to do so. I spat on her leg, turned, returned to my seat. It was now cold. Hilda looked at the spew on her leg, dripping onto the ground. She didn't wipe it away. She looked at me. I was an enemy of this new god once myself. In the beginning, she said. <laughs> I was not his enemy, I said. He made himself mine. How? Hilda said. I looked away. I grabbed a long branch. I shifted the fire's embers. Please, please leave. Just go, I said, never taking my eyes off the struggling flames. What happened? She asked again. <laughs> Norse women. I hate Norse women. Stubborn, resilient, always right. Unmovable. Sighing, I said, fine. I will tell you my story, but know my anger will not be sated, and my enmity with your god will never be crushed. Our aging eyes met. I know what it is to be a bastard. I was one.
In my youth, every spring I went raiding. Eric! My friend Leif called to me. Here's where they've all been hiding. I was covered in the blood of Irish farmers and monks and merchants. The blood of a traitor who refused to talk lay at my feet. I knew he had a stash of gold or silver somewhere. I could see it in his eyes. But losing his fingers hadn't made him give up the hiding place. I finally ran him through the gut and gave up. Maybe if we burned everything, we could sift through the ash and find their hoard of wealth metals. Leif called me again. <laughs> There's too many of them here for just me, he laughed. I stepped out of the merchant's hut and heard laughter coming from the town hall, or maybe it was the church. I sheathed my sword. I smiled. Inside, Leif, Bully, and Thrand cornered about eight young and beautiful women. Bully made the sign of the cross. <laughs> Which one of you have taken vows, eh? Thrand laughed. I stepped between the three, bumping Thrand. Take whatever you want here, I said. I want these two. I pointed to two of the older ones. One had red hair. I had never taken a woman with red hair before. The other's hair was dark like Odin's raven. Both looked belligerent, defiant, fiery. As I approached, the dark-haired one stepped forward, but I grabbed her neck and forced her back. I wrapped my arm around the red-haired one and dragged them both out of the hall, back toward the dead merchant's hut. I was not the leader of this raid, but during the raids there was no rank, no kings, no chiefs, no hired men, no farmers. All were equal. Hesitation alone could lower the spoils a man walked away with. And in their nervous excitement, Leif, Bully, and Thrand hesitated. I did not. I returned from the raid with many spoils. More sheep and cattle and pigs for my farm. More silver and even some gold for my wealth and even jeweled combs, fine tweezers, and clothing for my wife and for the children we were yet to have. Gita, my wife, was very comely. Blonde hair, broad hips, full breasts, and a strong chin. She ruled over our household well. She even managed to dominate our dogs and slaves where many others' wives would give into weak compassion. Yet despite six years of marriage and violent passion, we remained without a son. Not even a girl. Gita never once became big with child. We never talked about the raids, only the spoils. After returning this time, I felt tired. Gita must have sensed it. She always battled me, and like any good warrior, she struck the weak points. I was out in the grazing fields with a slave. One of the dogs had killed one of the lambs I won in the raid. This dog is for guarding! I kicked it. The animal yelped. Not for hurting! I struck the brown-headed slave in the stomach. He fell to the ground. I kicked him. I build you a house! My boot connected with his shoulder. You lived in a hole and I built you a house! His knee cracked. I give you my food, my protection, and you repay me by killing my property?! I pulled my leg back, 
ready to crack open his nose. Gita screamed across the grazing fields. Stop! Now! If she were anyone else, I would not have listened. Yet, like all of our women, she was lord of the home's affairs, even over me. Leave, she ordered the slave. Right now. I added, take that dog with you. Gita scowled at me, but did not speak. Once we were alone, her face softened. You cannot kill another slave. I know. It embarrasses you every time I must go and tell the news to the community, I said, realizing how tired I was. It goes beyond that, husband, she said. I am a Christian now. The old ways are not good. Don't ever tell anyone this. I tried to walk past her. She caught my arm. Christ has already conquered the old gods. The community will soon know this. <laughs> he is a god of weakness and foolishness, a god for slaves and pillaged people, I said. Gita placed her hand on my tunic. She slipped her hand under the fabric onto my chest. Her eyes filled with desire and longing. Her other hand rested on the handle of my sword. We laid amongst a grove of trees near the field. My lust for her was far greater than my exhaustion. After we made love, Gita rested her head on my chest and whispered, Just as I have conquered you, so too will Christ. When the fall harvest came, she died. A short time after returning from the raid, we both had become ill. The red-haired witch from that town had cursed me, and my curse passed on to my wife. I survived the fever. She did not. Neither Odin nor Jesus saved my wife. I saw this Christ heal chiefs, kings, and slaves. He was always healing slaves. He had the power, and Gita died. Jesus just didn't care. I continued to go on the raids. More than the plunder now, I enjoyed the battle, the anger, the vengeance, the blood. With the death of my wife, I now hired my neighbors during the raiding season to watch over my farm, my lands, my slaves, and my wealth. Three winters after the death of Gita, I sat in my home, much too large for just me. We built it in preparation for the large family we never had. The fire was warm and billowed white smoke straight up through the chimney in the roof and into the night sky. Brutus, the dog I took with me on raids, laid at my feet near the fires. When Gita lived, I kept him chained on the edge of my lands. He would never attack me but I didn't trust him with anyone else. He was the one who slaughtered the lamb. I stacked the remainder of the evening's firewood on and around the flames, ready to sleep through another dark winter night. But a pounding awoke my senses. Eric Lambskin! A voice bellowed outside. Open the door! I buckled my belt and sheathed a sword around my waist. Then I opened the front door. Four men, well-groomed beards, all in armor. Two bore torches. One bore a pike. The other bore a small bundle of clothes. Eric Lambskin? The one with the bundle asked. 
What do you want? I gripped the handle of my sword, threatening these men I had never seen before. Your cousin Snorin and his entire clan has been wiped out in a feud, he said. You are a distant relative to him, and we have brought you the only survivor. He pushed aside the cloth and revealed the face of a small girl, two, perhaps three years of age. She slept in his arms. No, I said, closing the door. The one with the pike stopped the door. He was very strong. He forced his way in, followed by the man holding the sleeping child. Brutus growled, and I shut him away. I did not fear an altercation, but I did not want to enter into one, solely because my dog could not control his aggression. The men entered my house as I shut the dog away. The pike man stood by the door. The other men looked around the house. We were told you have no children and would welcome a member of your family. Where is your woman? My wife is dead. The man paused for only a moment, then extended the girl toward me. I stepped back. No. So he set the sleeping child onto my bearskin rug. We were given orders. I've done my part. He turned to the door, but before he and the pikeman stepped back into the darkness, he turned back. Do whatever you want. There is no one left who cares for her or will speak on her behalf. Foster her with no compensation. Give her to your slaves. Leave her in the woods. Sell her to another family. It matters not. No, I charged the door. They retreated outside, but I howled at them. Find someone else. Find anyone else. This child is not my responsibility. They fled into the darkness. Some distance off, I heard horses galloping. They must have left them out some distance so the dog would not hear their approach. I still shouted, This child's life is on your heads, not mine! They rode into the night and snow. I turned back inside. The little girl sat up, eyes open, looking around, tired. Looking back outside, I growled before closing out the night. I stood above the small girl. What do they call you? Beneath wild blonde hair and through blue eyes, she stared at me. I heard Brutus suppress a low growl from behind the door in the other room. His moan turned into a ravenous barking. He clawed at the door and howled. I opened the door, and he paused for a moment, but then he charged toward the girl. I growled back at the dog. No! Grabbing him by the scruff of the neck, I dragged him to the front door and threw him outside. I felt guilty for a moment. He would have to sleep outside in the snowstorm. I hardened my heart, though. He was loyal to me, but he was still a dog. Bed. The girl muttered from the floor. I grumbled, but pulled several rugs together in the corner of the main room. I picked her up and dropped her on the pile. I also dropped a blanket on her. Before I left the room, I pointed to the fire. Don't go near that. I went into my room. As a warrior, I long ago learned how to shut my mind off. I fell asleep. The next morning, I awoke. A body lay in the bed next to me. A tiny body. The girl. I growled and kicked her off the bed. No. She yelped and started to cry. Then wail. I grit my teeth, leaving her monstrous bellowing behind. I walked to the common room, put on an overcoat, grabbed my axe, and left the child alone in my home. When I stepped into the snow, I realized I forgot to put on my boots. I hesitated for a moment, about to go back into the hut, 
but instead I let the snow sting my bare feet as I trudged toward the ditches where I kept my slaves. My slaves at this time actually slept in small huts. I used to keep them in holes in the ground, as was the custom of our people. But after Gita began following your Christ, she insisted on building them proper homes. I still called them ditches. The gray-haired slave would know the identity of the warriors who violated my lands. Gray! I bellowed him awake as I stepped inside his ditch. My slaves did not have names. None that I would speak or allow to be spoken. When I conquered them, I took them as slaves because their bodies and minds seemed strong, but their wills possessed no resolve. I referred to them by the color of their hair. Gray, brown, red. Gray awoke. Y yes Lord? Last night four men came to my door and left a small girl. Did they pass this way? Do you know who they are? <laughs> no Lord. Gray stood to his feet. I frowned and turned to the door, then paused. Give me your boots. Y yes, master. He reached down to the side of his dilapidated cot and pulled up a pair of tattered boots. I looked at them, then at his worn, sweaty, and warty face. <sighs> Never mind. But I added, do you know anything about raising small children? You, he began to say, but paused. No, I do not. What about the others? I asked. They would not either, he said. I turned to the door. It snowed last night. I gestured outside. Make sure you clear all the huts and walkways. Of course, Lord. I didn't need to tell him this. My slaves both feared and understood me. I rarely needed to interact with them at all for my homestead to function. My naked feet only stung a moment before they became numb again. I grabbed my axe, intent on splitting wood for the evening, but instead I went to the stables, mounted a horse, and rode to the community place where the thing assembled at least once a year. I did not expect any soul to be there. Only dire business was conducted in the winter. And yet I found no less than three heads of families there. All of them I raided with. Ha 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 ha! What brings Eric Lambskin to our meeting? Bayo called to me as I dismounted. Ah, uh, has the beast also visited your farm, Eric? Ud added. I shook my head. A beast has indeed visited my homestead, but I imagine it's of a different sort. <sighs> what is it, Eric? Viglak asked. For the last seven days, something has preyed on our ponies and sheep, but the winds and snow have been so bad we cannot find any tracks. Ah, uh, Bayo thinks it's a troll, Ud added. I stepped to Ud. And what do you think, old friend? Our forearms thundered together as we shook hands and embraced. I think it's a wolf, he said. Either a wolf or that vicious dog of yours has forgotten his territory. He has not, I said. I called to Bayo. Why do you think it's a troll? Viglak answered. Come, look at my pony. I walked to his pony, which stood beside his horse. Both were branded. Look he said, throwing aside a blanket resting on the creature's back. Four large claw marks gashed through the beast. Each mark was a full finger length apart. This pony won't make it back home, but I need to convince Ud to gather his hired men to hunt this creature down. Ud pulled the blanket back over the pony. Ah, this is the work of marauders. Perhaps those outsiders we threw out of the community at the last thing. He paused. But no troll. The last person to have seen one of their kind died twenty years ago. And I did not believe his claim. Viglak yelled out, Eric, where are your boots? With my beast, 
I answered. <laughs> what beast steals boots but leaves the feet? Viglak asked. <sighs> a girl. A little girl, I said. Two, maybe a little older. Last night, a group of men with no clan or family crests dropped her at my house before I could refuse. They said she is a distant relative. They all stood silent. Have any of you seen these men? I asked. Silence. Can one of you take her? I asked. All of your wives still live. They remained without word until Viglak spoke. Now, my friend, if what you say is true, we may have found our trolls, our marauders. But I can help you hunt them down while one of your wives cares for this child, I said. Uh, look at us, Eric, Ud said. You are still young, but we have all become old. We cannot care for a child, certainly not a girl, and you cannot leave her to die, locking her inside your own home. He put his hand on my shoulder. Follow the old ways. Place her in the forest, and give her to whatever fate Odin deems right. I looked at these men and had not realized how old they had become until that moment. My feet began to hurt. Intense pain coursed through my body. I flinched and then felt very old myself. I walked away from my friends to leave them to their troll hunt. See you in the spring, little brother! Bayo called as I mounted my horse and rode home. Ever since Christ invaded our beliefs, we talked about the old ways. But they are not all that old. My cousin abandoned several of his wife's children when he suspected infidelity. My own father's wife was burned alive at sea with him when he died. I myself have beaten my slaves like a mongrel dog and declared their deaths to the community. As I approached my hut, I resolved to follow the old ways. Not willing to foster this child, I would give her to Odin. My long-dead wife would not approve, nor would this Jesus God she followed. But I had no concern for my sins, save for cowardice. I cared only for my own valor and strength and courage. It was late afternoon when I arrived home. The inside was trashed. It looked like those marauders had returned. Clothes were spread over the entire floor. Ashes from the hearth soiled the wall. The smell of soot filled the air. But worse, I caught glimpses of gold pieces around the main room. They had found my treasure hoard. Then a crash echoed from my bedchamber. Choking up on the handle of my axe, I jumped into my room, ready to bury its blade into the gut of the first intruder I encountered. The small girl sat in the middle of the room. She was throwing gold pieces across the floor. How she found the floorboard, removed the bricks, and lifted out the chest I do not know to this very day. Soot covered her face and hands and clothes. She also smelled sweet. I stepped forward, gripping the axe tighter. Globs of honey dripped from her soot-covered hands and onto her dress. She had gotten into my honey pots. I raged. I would have struck her dead right there, but to do so would have been considered a grave dishonor according to the old ways. <laughs> according to the new ways too, I suppose. With all my resolve, I forced myself to loosen my grip on the axe and put it down. What have you done to my home? I growled. The little girl looked straight at me, and even though the daylight grew dim, I could see her eyes were bright blue. 
She opened her mouth. Daddy. She stood to her feet and walked up to me. I was furious, but also taken off guard by what she had just called me. Daddy, uh... The girl raised her hands to me. I, I, I am not your father, I said. She raised her hands again. Daddy, eat. I am not your father. I shoved her away into the floor. She started crying, but she stood to her feet again. Still crying, she began shrieking. Daddy, up! Daddy, eat! Daddy, eat! Shut up! I pushed her down again. The shrieking intensified. Not wanting to hear her anymore, I relented. Putting my hands under her armpits, I lifted up her sooty, sticky body. I was shocked how little she weighed. How could anything be so light? I was even more shocked that she stopped crying. The girl wrapped her arms and legs around me. She fell asleep. It felt good. And I didn't like that it felt good. I needed to do this now. She destroyed my home, unburied my secrets, and I was unable to care for her. It had become rather dark outside, so I wrapped myself in a bearskin, put on my boots and grabbed my axe. I put a skin over the girl as well. I didn't want her waking up. The trip into the forest was a short ride on the horse. The girl never woke up. The sky was clear for once, and the almost full moon illuminated much of the path. At last I came to a place where a high rock stood. The snow had not yet covered it, and I knew this would be the place to leave the child. Even as I dismounted the horse, she did not wake. Trudging through the snow, I stepped up onto the rock. Just two feet above the snow line, a flat groove, almost like a cradle, positioned between two humps in the rock. I laid the girl down inside the rock cradle. The moonlight danced over her face as the wind blew through the trees. This was a good way to go, for her, peaceful, in sleep, gradually losing heat. She would likely never wake up. I forced a breath in and let it out. She belonged to Odin now. I stepped off the rock and back into the snow. I mounted my horse once again, and before I left, I listened for a moment. Silence. I breathed again and began riding away. A howl cried out from somewhere beyond the rock. Most who heard it would think it was the call of a wolf, but I recognized the canine voice. It was Brutus. I turned the horse and kicked him on toward the rock. All feared Brutus, even those I raided with. Red, gray, and brown fled from him. Brutus was loyal to one and only one man. Me. He howled again, this time much closer. His voice snarled. I jumped from the horse and pulled my axe free from my side. I leapt onto the rock and the girl screamed, but not because of me. On the opposite side of her, Brutus snarled and growled. His hackles stood on end and saliva poured from his mouth. He had the high ground standing above us both. Brutus, no! I shouted, but he was already in the air. I swung the axe through him as he lunged down to the girl. 
the head and front haunches of Brutus landed on the girl. His stomach and back legs fell off the other side of the rock. I don't know why I reacted the way I did. I just did. I intended to leave her alone in the night to succumb to whatever fate Odin or Christ or whomever deemed fit for her. And yet, I responded in this way. The little girl, covered in blood and half the remains of the dog, cried. But it wasn't a shrieking like before. It was desperate. It was needy. Lonely. Helpless. She cried. I dropped my axe and squatted down. I tossed Brutus's carcass off her tiny frame, and I picked her up. I am here. I don't know what had happened to me. I found myself with a deep protectiveness for this little girl. More than that, I found I had a deep affection for her as well. That winter was the hardest winter of my life, but it was also the greatest. What is your name? I asked her that second night while she slept. I asked again the next morning but received no answer. No intelligible answer anyway. She cleaned up easy enough, but trying to feed her was infuriating. The salted meats were flung into the fire, but not before she licked off the salt. She liked vegetables, but I ran out of my winter supply rather quickly. I did find she had a distinct taste for honey. I couldn't keep her out of my supplies. Red had a particular talent in raising bees, so I had plenty of mead and combs and liquid. She stayed out of the mead. It was too strong, but no shelf or brick or hiding place could keep her from the honey. So I began calling her my little honeybee, because beyond her love for honey, she never stopped. Only when she slept. And this is the strange part. As the time for the spring raids approached, I found I had no interest in them anymore. Where I had once anticipated the battle, the adrenaline, the body company, and the spoils of carnage, now all I wanted was to hold my little honeybee, to rock her to sleep in my arms, to lose my temper with her, to have her mimic my angry face and then smile and say, Ah, sorry daddy. As she continued to do the very thing that had just infuriated me, I also began praying to the Christian God, to Christ, to Jesus. I do not understand it. Perhaps it was that every word Gita had spoken to me of this gospel was finally beginning to affect my mind. Perhaps in the innocence of honeybee, Christianity made more sense than the old ways, tainted with blood and vengeance and hate. Whatever it was, I came to realize Christ was real. He had brought Honeybee to my doorstep. He had turned me around that night in the woods and had steadied my hand to strike Brutus down before he could hurt my daughter. Honeybee could sit on my lap with her little blonde head and listen to stories for hours. Her eyes were always attentive. And what eyes they were. Blue, but not merely blue. A blue of such depth they rivaled the oceans. And a blue of such brightness they twinkled like the evening stars on a clear night. Daddy, story, daddy, eat. No, daddy. Up, daddy, up. I often tired of her constant demands, but not for long. Every new word she learned was a new right for her to possess and declare, Mine! And yet she was so innocent, so beautiful, 
so affectionate, so needy, so loving. She was my daughter. One night during the thaw, after I had gone to bed, someone pounded on my door. I sat up. Light from the fire in the main room flickered into the room. Honey was still on her little cot on the other side of the room asleep. More pounding at the door. Standing up, I pulled my sword out from beneath my bed. When I opened the door and saw four men standing before me whose clothing and weapons bore no marks, every one of my brutal instincts returned. You will not step foot in my house, I said. I widened my stance. One of the men, the same who had held Honey the first night she was put into my care, stepped forward. His red hair and beard were well-groomed, better than the first time I had seen him. Have you abandoned the girl? he asked. No, I said without thinking. He smiled. Then we can take her from you. The man stepped forward, but I lifted my sword. I told you not to step foot into my house. His guards lowered their long spears. The man dismissed them with a wave of his hand. I thought this would be good news, Eric Lambskin. You said you did not want the child, so I spent all of these winter months seeking a family for you. I forced myself to lower my weapon. I saw a deception in his eyes that had not been there on the previous visit. He was lying. All of my instincts told me to run them through, to chop off their heads and bury their bodies. Instead, I spoke. The girl is mine. She is at home here. This is her home. My grip tightened around the sword. I am her father. I see, said the man. But you have no wife. The family I found can care for her in ways a warrior cannot. I wanted to know who these men were, where they came from, and where their allegiances lied. But I wanted them gone. I knew I could strike down two of them myself, but all four was unlikely. She is well taken care of here, I said. Go. The man was about to say something, but I stopped him. Now. He nodded. It was almost a bow. He looked me in the eyes, turned and walked back into the night. I bolted the door. I put on my chainmail. I strapped my knife to my belt. I strapped my axe to my waist. I pulled my shield down from the wall. I held my sword in both hands. The panic grew greater inside my gut. I ran to my room. Was Honey still there? She was. I did not sleep that night, nor the next, nor the next. Gray had seen them travel from the west and return that way, but he did not recognize them. Likely they came in from the fjord, but after there they could have traveled anywhere. Dad scared? Honey Bee said one night as I was holding her in my arms, trying to get her to sleep. No, honey, I said, but then I thought about it, and I knew I was. I had considered hiring some men, building barracks. I had even begun making plans on how I could keep an eye on Honey Bee while plowing the fields after the thaw. For the first time in my life, since I was a child, I was afraid. I felt powerless and fearful. So I laid my little girl down in her bed, and as she drifted into sleep, I placed my hands on her head. Christian God, Jesus Christ, 
I have no right to ask for anything on my behalf. But for her sake, I pray for Honeybee. Keep her safe where I cannot. Protect her from those who would take her from her father. Preserve her life. I have seen your power. The power to create the whole world and the power to change men's hearts. I ask that the same power surrounds my daughter, wherever she goes. I fell asleep holding honey. After the thaw, I tried to strap Honeybee to my back while I plowed furrows with gray, red, and brown. At first, she laughed as we walked behind the oxen, but after a short time, she began shrieking, Down! Down! Daddy! Down! I ignored her. Gray approached me. Lord, the child's yells are upsetting the beasts. <sighs> he was right, but I could tell he was in distress as well so I set her down with strict instructions to stay behind me at all times. Do you understand? Yes. She smiled. Then she ran up to the oxen before I could grab her. Cows. Get away from them. I ran after her. She ran away. Moo, moo. I only caught her because her giggling slowed her down. Once I gathered her into my arms, I looked at Brown. He nodded. He understood I needed him to take over. I turned to our home and tossed Honeybee into the air. <laughs> well, you win, I said as she squealed with delight. I kissed her on the cheek. <laughs> you always win. She covered her cheeks with both hands and giggled. Daddy walk, she said. Setting her down, I said, only if you promise not to run. We both smiled. She turned and ran for the house, checking behind her every now and then to make sure I was still there. I growled as I chased her. A bell! She yelled with a smile on her face. Once we reached the hut, she stopped. Out of breath. Satisfied. She turned back to me and held her hands up. I picked Honey up and she wrapped her arms around my neck and her legs around my chest. She buried her head into me and fell asleep right away. I smiled. Opening the front door with my free hand, I nudged it open all the way with my leg. As I stepped into our home, something hit me in the nose. I heard a cracking and fell backward out of the house. I must have blacked out for a moment because when I sat up, I saw a dozen men before me. Honey was nowhere in sight, but I could hear her screaming. Screaming in absolute terror. Without thought or weapon, I roared, surging forward. The closest man was unprepared. Turning to me, I saw he wore a shirt and coif of mail. Before he could raise his sword, I crushed his face with my left fist, knocking him to the ground. I grabbed his sword and swung like a wild man. It caught the thigh of a man approaching me from behind. He screamed and went down. A third warrior ran at me, trying to skewer me with a pike. I deflected the thrust, grabbed the shaft of his weapon, and buried his companion's sword into his gut. He wore no mail. I turned and faced at least nine men approaching me. I had never seen any of them before. Their pikes and spears and swords bore no marks or identifications. Their clothes offered no clues to their identities. Lowering my voice, I gripped the sword. Give me my daughter. Honey screamed again, but it was distant. It was very distant. I threw myself at these warriors. 
Almost instantly, my right forearm caught the edge of a blade. Then my left calf was struck. Still, I bellowed as I swung the sword. I drew blood from them. Much blood. But it was far too little. They knocked me to the ground as I heard Honey's screaming turn more desperate, more frightened, more alone. One of the men kicked me in the face. Bastards! I yelled. Another grabbed me from behind, restraining my arms. Bone sucking! A fist slammed into my gut. Cowarding outlaws! They struck me in the face. My nose gushed. Damn you all! My forehead burst open. Blood filled my vision. Christ help me! Hilda Barrel threw another spindled branch onto the fire. You never did find the girl, did you? She asked. No, I answered. After Red brought me back to health, I all but abandoned my home and my farm. None in the community knew anything. I inquired of the chiefs and lords and even the king, but none knew anything or had concern for one lost little girl. I'm sorry, Eric, she said. I did not know. Few did. We sat there and watched the fire crackle and begin to die. Hilda grabbed another log, but I stood. It seems none will come to slay me tonight. Hilda stood as well. Eric Lambskin, Christ did not- I put up a hand. Do not proselytize me, Hilda. I believe it is all true. I believe this Jesus is indeed the creator, and his power is great. I believe everything you believe, except- I bent down and gathered an armful of snow. Except he is my enemy. I asked him for help. I asked him for help for my little honeybee. And he did nothing. I threw snow into the fire. Snow and ash filled the space between us. He did nothing. Every night I sat with my back to the mead hall, whether anyone was there or not. Hilda never returned. The spring thaw had come late that year. My farm barely survived. Red and brown did what they could. Gray had died a long time ago. I depleted my treasure hoard to keep us all fed. My hoard only shrank. It never grew. Neither my heart nor my body could endure the raiding any longer. Finally, when spring came, I sat out in the perpetual dusk of the night near the meat hall. A young and beautiful woman approached me. She looked older than she should have, with the face of a warrior who knew more of battle than of rest. She was unarmed, so clearly this woman had not come to kill me. Are you Eric Lambskin? She asked. 
I turned away from her as she approached. I am. After a few more steps, she placed her hand on my shoulder. I looked up. Indeed, the lines on her face were premature, but her eyes, her eyes were brilliant, deeper than the blue ocean and shimmering like the stars in the heavens. I stood. This woman was a whole head shorter than me. She looked up at me with her faded blonde hair and blue, blue eyes. Honeybee, I could barely whisper. I could see that she could barely breathe. My father used to call me that, she said, long ago. A warm breeze blew her hair toward me. I, my voice caught. I found that I could not speak, but I pushed hard. So very hard. And I managed to whimper. I am your father. She wrapped her arms around me and I wrapped my arms around her. We held each other. We held each other for the longest time. I kissed her head over and over and over never believing she was real. How did you find me? You were so small. Honey loosened her embrace, just a little. Hilda Barrel, I was telling my story in my community at the thing. She was there, visiting a nephew. She interrupted me and told me about you. She paused. I left immediately. But, I asked, how do you even remember me? You were with me for barely more than a season. Honeybee looked away and stepped back a bit. All my life, I could remember a man who was big and loud and brave. He held me. He rocked me to sleep at night. He told me stories. He laughed with me. She looked up. He loved me. Truly, Jesus had answered my prayer all those years ago. I embraced her again. I embraced my daughter before I took her back to our home. Red and Brown prepared one of the calves for us. The best one. Spring was in full bloom. The oak and maple stood fully greened, their leaves broad and plentiful. The casemir filled the open area of the woods, its yellow flowers replacing the dull grayness that followed the thaw. The purple rosildre dotted the stony areas of the homestead, and the store nacaros floated atop the still waters on the ponds. Honey smiled. It is all much smaller than I remember it. Our meal was excessive, far more than the men should have prepared. Sausage, boiled eggs, milk, onions, mushrooms, hazelnuts, blackberries, roasted venison seasoned with wild leeks, and of course, honey. But as excessive as it was, it still wasn't enough to celebrate honeybee. Once we were done, as dusk settled in, I prepared a fire in the main room. Spring nights still brought a chill into the night hours. I found myself feeling very awkward. My emotions were overwhelmed with happiness, but here sat a woman whom I had reserved all my affections for, but I had not seen since she was a small girl. What should I say? How much affection was appropriate? I wanted to sit her on my lap and rock her to sleep. Do people call you honeybee? I asked. She smiled. It was a grown-up smile, but there was a hint of her mannerisms as a girl. No, she answered. I have taken a Christian name. I am called Joy now. I was about to speak, but she continued. But here, 
in this place, in this home, with you, I am your honeybee. Is Joy the name given to you by the family that took you in? I asked. She looked away. What were they like? I asked. Did they call you Joy from the start? No. She looked back at me. They did not. Although the fire burned, a chill filled the room. We looked at each other. Something was being communicated between us, but I did not understand the message. When you were a little girl, I placed my hands on your head over there. I pointed to the bedroom, and I prayed a prayer over you while you slept. I asked the Christian God. I inhaled. I asked Jesus to watch over you and to protect you all your days. The fire snapped, and we both looked to it, but our eyes met again. Did he honor my prayer? Honey never looked away. Tears formed in her eyes. He did. She looked down. The tears trickled from her eyes. He did. I exhaled. <sighs> so it was a good family then. A happy childhood. Even as I spoke, I knew it was not true. The age on her face told another story. She wiped her eyes. It was not. Anger rose up in me. A fury far beyond anything I had experienced before, even after she was taken. They used you as a slave, I said. She nodded. They hit you, I growled, and beat you, and whipped you. My teeth ground together, and starved you, Honey said. Yes. She was about to say something else, but stopped. What else? I asked. She looked away to the fire. It does not matter now. I did not mean to yell at her, but I did. What else? Honeybee looked at me. She looked at me and I understood what had happened. What had happened to her for years and years. I did not want to understand, but I did. Even as child, my voice caught. My anger was gone. In its place, brokenness. She nodded. I could not hold back the tears in my eyes. I was ashamed for weeping, yet it would not stop. Then how? It came out as a weeping hiss. How can you say Christ honored my prayer? The anger returned. But it wasn't for the monsters who abused her. No, it was directed at the Christian God, who invaded our lands, performed miracles, changed the hearts of men, and yet allowed my daughter, my daughter, to be raped, to grow up being violated when she had a home here. I was hunched over. My tears fell into my hands and onto the floor. Honey placed her hand on my head. Then she rested her forehead on top of my head as well. Because one night, seven years ago, I took 31 girls out of this family's dungeon. I took 31 young girls to freedom before they were tortured like I had been tortured. Honey lifted my head. She said, I brought them to Lord Olaf, and he ordered his men to bring these girls home. He commanded his hunters to find the outlaws stealing these children, and he sent his personal guard to stop the family. I don't care about those girls, I said. I did not bounce them on my knee or feed them or run with them in the fields. I paused. It doesn't matter how many you saved. Christ allowed you to suffer. He allowed my little girl to suffer. I am not okay with that. I can never be at peace with it. He created all the seas and all the worlds. He could have prevented your pain and the pain of those girls without you. Yes, she said. He could have. And why didn't he? 
What is the point of any of this pain? I stood and threw a log into the fire. Sparks and embers spit out of the fire and onto the floor. I stomped them out, over and over. Once I had finally stopped pounding my foot on the floor, Honeybee stood and took my hand. It is the same purpose of any pain. The pain which Christ endured, the pain which I suffered, and even the pain you now feel. Tears fell from her eyes again. To do whatever it takes to make sure no one else suffers like you did. The wind blew outside. I could not feel it, but I knew it was warm. This time of year, the wind was always warm, causing crops to germinate and the leaves of the maples and oaks and sycamores to come back to life. Can I stay the night? Honey asked. I turned my back to her and toward the fire. No. Never turning around, I heard her gather her coat, her pack, and slip into her boots. This woman was a stranger to me. I did not know her. I never knew her. She lived her whole life apart from me. She was only my honeybee for a few months. The woman stepped outside and closed the door. No, I whispered to myself. I turned. I threw open the door. No, I yelled. Come back inside. Come back in. She turned and ran back, jumping into my arms. At my age, I strained under her weight, but I held her. I held my little honeybee. I carried her into the house. We both sobbed. I laid her on my bed. You can sleep here. I will sleep by the fire in the other room. In a moment, we both calmed. Both of us were exhausted. Kissing her on the forehead, I moved to stand up, but she grabbed my arm. I escaped, she said. With more than those 31 girls, I also took with me five women who were abused along with me all those years. And how are they now? I asked. Broken, in some way or another, she said. But not you? Honeybee shook her head. Not me. She squeezed my arm. Even in the midst of all the cruelty, I can remember knowing those men were wrong. I knew it was evil. I knew there was something far better. Something beautiful. She leaned up. Because I could remember a man who told me stories and laughed when I threw food across the room and tickled me when I was angry and rocked me to sleep at night. I held on to that image, knowing it was not a fantasy, but a love that existed. I love you, my little honeybee. Placing my hand on her forehead, I lowered her head back to the bed. I kissed her brow and held my lips there for a moment. Gathering a bearskin near the edge of the fire, I stared toward the room where Honeybee slept. She had come to peace with what happened to her. She endured horrors and thanked the Christ Lord for giving her the privilege to rescue others. I sat awake until the fire died out. I had not built it well. I realized in that moment that Christ had defeated me. Jesus had conquered me. And I did not know if this was bad or good.
And that was our story. I hope you liked it. Additional narration was provided by Kristen L. Norman and my daughter. The month of November was National Adoption Month. This story was written during the very difficult time my wife and I fostered a little girl who thankfully became our daughter. I'll put a link in the show notes to a blog article about the nightmare of this whole process. And I need to confess something to you listeners. The story originally appeared in the Crossover Alliance Anthology Volume 1, and I had intended to turn this into an audio story for quite some time. Even a few years removed from the events that inspired this story, I found it traumatic to revisit the story. In fact, I think this story almost sunk the entire podcast twice. It was just too painful to revisit. So, I suspect Snow and Ash will be my most personal story, and I certainly hope it stays that way. As we go, remember that... This podcast is part of the Christian Geek Central Network at ChristianGeekCentral.com. Please remember to join our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, blog about us, leave us a nice review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find us, support us on Patreon, and tell your friends. And remember to submit your Good Snakes flash fiction by the end of the month. The Untold Podcast has been funded by Jason Brannon, Fred Heimbach, Clayton Webb, Jen Finelli, Parker J. Cole, and Nathan and Casey Butler. And I'm Nathan James Norman, reminding you, he is a god of weakness and foolishness, a god for slaves and pillaged people. Such a dark side, you know You yourself have 
Wait till you're ready. Think, think, think about being tired. Here, yawn with me. Okay. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Not yet. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Oh. <laughs> okay, I can't. <laughs> Maybe that Is there I'm one sure more? I didn't. I, that might have been it. Yeah. Hopefully, that was it. <laughs> Let me say something. Goodbye.